Today we are starting a new series. I have spent quite a bit of time on this case because I wanted to answer just one simple question. Was the Torch Slayer a serial killer? And you may be asking yourself who even is the Torch Slayer, or if you do know who he is, you know of his one victim. But I have always believed in this case there were more victims. The basic definition of a serial killer is someone who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically follows a predictable behavior pattern. What I hope to do in this podcast is provide you with the most complete view of this case ever put together. This is the very first time that anyone has ever done this deep of a dive on this case, and I hope I've done it justice. This story first takes place in February of 1928. A woman named Margaret Brown is getting ready to start a new chapter of her life. Little does she know, it's her final chapter. One, two, three, and... Hello everyone and welcome to what is officially known as Season 2 of Forgotten True Crime. The podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examine each case independently of other people's opinions. We search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and so much more. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you will be the first to know when we have new episodes. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. That's where we post each of these stories. And we also post a lot of the reports and things that we gathered for each case there as well. We have a Facebook page and a YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten True Crime. Love can make a person do strange things. It blinds you to the obvious, like deceit, lies, and even danger. Unfortunately for some, missing these warning signs can mean placing yourself in a perilous situation. On February 21st, 1928, Enal Campbell was driving home in the early morning hours after a late morning out in Morristown, New Jersey, with his wife and his neighbor, James Murdoch. Morristown was a nice and quiet community, so it was a surprise to everyone in the car when they saw something burning in the distance in the Morristown-Bernardsville Highway, and now thought it might be one of those roadside stands that vendors would set up and leave overnight. The flames were large enough that they thought it would be best to stop and see if they could assist in putting it out. It was near a gas station and they just did not want to think about the possibility if it too caught on fire. As they approached, they discovered the fire was indeed behind a roadside stand 
and it was very, very close to the gas station. The fire appeared to be on the ground, which was weird since fresh snow blanketed the city. And now James got out of the car and they approached the fire and were shocked to find in the middle of this fire was actually a person engulfed in the flames. They tried to put the fire out, but nothing they did seemed to work. Finally, the two men started taking the snow and they were dousing the fire by covering the body completely with snow. Now, and now could smell gasoline and then realize that the person they found was just soaked in it. Just as James began saying that this was a horrible way for someone to die, the body of the charred person began to move and struggled to breathe. Both men realized this poor person was still alive. It was then a police car pulled up. The chief of police, Kavanaugh, was alerted by a passerby about the fire. He was the first official to the scene, and the chief approached the two men who were putting the fire out. They told him about what they had come across and that the person was still alive. Acting quickly, the three men brought the body to the police car and loaded it in the back seat. And now got into his car and followed along. And James actually got in the back of the police car with this injured person. It was then he realized that the charred person was a woman. They pulled back onto the road and, and now drove as fast as he could on the ice-covered roads. The nearest hospital was not too far away, but to everyone's horror, the woman began to burst into flames that spread quickly over the clothes of her body. Chief Kavanaugh was forced to pull over and they pulled the woman out of the car. They once again put her out with the snow, and the flames were then again extinguished. They quickly put her back in the car, and now James realized she did not seem to be breathing anymore. When they reached the hospital, the staff tried to do what they could for the woman, but it was just too late. They pronounced her dead at 3 a.m ending this woman's final chapter in life, but marking the beginning of a wild murder investigation. The investigation was headed up by Chief Charles Cavanaugh and County Prosecutor Francis Burgeon. The unidentified woman's body was now in the hands of Coroner R.D. Totten. They first wanted to establish whether this woman had done this to herself or not. There was no mistaking what caused the fire. She was soaked in gasoline. The smell was potent. As Totten examined the body, he found nothing obvious that pointed out that she was injured before the fire. He also knew that she left some jewelry on, including a 24 karat gold watch. Her clothing was not cheap. She had a silk skin coat on 
that looked like a custom order from a well-known fur, Thomas Lewis, and was marked Lewis from Buffalo. The thing that looked very odd on the woman's body was that it didn't appear that she tried to put herself out or protect herself from harm in any way. Even if you had done this to yourself on purpose, you would be in such extreme pain you would react to the flames. It looked like she didn't move at all after the fire started. Her right arm was very charred, along with her legs, almost to the bone. The other side was virtually untouched. Thinking she had been drugged or something along those lines, Totten ordered that she have an autopsy done. He contacted the Somerville Hospital and set up an appointment with the county physician George L. Mack in hopes that he could provide some more answers. The detectives took the items that may help identify the woman and began getting the word out about what had happened. The first step was to alert the local news of the incident. The report itself may provide identification quicker than their own legwork. The second thing they did was that they had officers in Buffalo, New York visit Thomas Lewis, who had created that custom sealskin coat. They hoped he could shed some light on the woman's identity by describing the tailored coat and the woman. It actually did not take very long for officers to contact Thomas Lewis. Uh, he was very welcoming and brought the officers in to his shop. They described the coat to him, but he could provide little information on who the woman may be. He had sold several coats like it, and the vague description of the woman was really no help. But Thomas had a well-organized list of clients who lived in the area. He gave the officers the name of his clients who lived in New Jersey in hopes that one of them might be able to help identify this woman. Chief Charles Cavanaugh and County Prosecutor Francis Burgeon searched for clues at the crime scene. Although this was a horrible thing that had happened, they did not know if this woman was murdered or if this was something she had done to herself. The chief knew that the coroner's theory was that she was probably not conscious when she was set on fire, but now they were looking for evidence that supported that theory. Near where she was found, there was a small gas station. That station had been closed at the time, and there was no way she would have been able to get gas from the pump. There was nothing around like matches or a lighter or any kind of container that held gas in the area. But what they did find were tire tracks leading up to the spot where she had been left. It looked like someone had simply pulled behind the building, then pulled her out of the car, and then set her on fire. Over the next 24 hours, police began to run down leads, look for witnesses, and continued to try to identify this poor woman. As all of this was happening, the newspapers ran the story as front page news. 
It was through these news articles they received their first big tip. Possible identification. Miss Mary Brown, who resided in Fort Lee, New Jersey, was worried about her aunt Margaret Brown. She was supposed to be going on a trip, but she had dropped all contact with the family after she had lunch with her sister-in-law. The woman that Aunt Margaret worked for had called and asked if they heard from Margaret recently. When Mary told her that she had not, the employer told Mary about the woman found dead in the paper and how the detailed description reminded her of Margaret. All of this worried Mary, but the thing that worried her the most was she knew that Margaret was carrying around quite a bit of money. When she had lunch with her sister-in-law, Margaret said that she had withdrawn $9,000 from her bank account, which in 1928 was the equivalent of having over $150,000. So Mary Brown phoned the police and talked to Detective Fred Roth, who was currently working on the case. They went over identifying marks that were known to have been on Margaret Brown. And one such mark was a surgery scar she had on her torso. Detective Roth checked the body. And sure enough, there was a surgery scar just as described. The detective described the clothing that the victim had on. Each article was confirmed to have been something Margaret had owned. So the detective asked if Mary would be willing to come down to the station and make a formal identification. Even though they were pretty sure that the woman had now been identified, they still needed to make sure that this was indeed Margaret Brown. Mary agreed to come down the next day by police escort. Before hanging up, Detective Roth asked what it was that Margaret did for a living. Mary told the detective that Margaret was a woman of means. She had money, but wanted to work for something to do with her life. She had obtained a job as a governess and was working for the Galipsi family. She had been employed with them for nine months. Detectives discovered that the Galipsis, who Margaret worked for, were very wealthy. They lived in New York and on Park Avenue. Working as a governess for them meant receiving many of the perks of living wealthy. When interviewed, Mr. and Mrs. Galipsy stated that Margaret liked going to Central Park in her free time. They believed that she had met someone and was planning to go away with him soon. From what Margaret had told the family, she was planning on going to California. All of this was news to the detectives. They had heard from the family that she was planning on going to Florida, but not California. The day prior, Margaret had left their employment under excellent terms to pursue a life of her own. So the detectives asked about the amount of money Margaret had on her when she left their employment. The Glipsies told the detectives that they were not really quite sure how much money she had, 
but when they told the Glipsies they believed that she had $8,000 at the time of her death, the Glipsies seemed genuinely shocked that she would be carrying around that much money. Miss Glipsy told the detectives that she had talked to a man who came to see her. Uh, she believed him to be a doctor, and his name was Dr. Huff or Hoff. Detectives were also told that when Margaret Brown left her employment, she took a large trunk with her, something that was not with her now. She had received mail several times at her place of employment, and as far as they knew, she never threw those letters away or burned them, which was a common practice at the time. As the news broke that named Margaret Brown as the possible victim, reports began to filter in about Margaret and what may have happened to her. While she lived in New York and in the employment of the Glipsies, Margaret was seen several times talking to a man around Central Park. He was described as a little younger and seemed quite taken with Margaret. But because of her private nature, no one knew his name. And they only had a vague description of him and of the car that he drove. What they were able to piece together was that they believed he drove a blue sedan. A blue sedan was also reported to have been seen in the area the night of the fire. With little to go on, detectives returned to search for this blue sedan or even Dr. Huff or Hoff. On the next day, a letter arrived at the police station through the morning post. The clerk believed it was just an ordinary letter and opened it. Two $1,000 bonds fell out onto the desk, along with a full confession letter. The letter read, I am writing you this letter and sending you these bonds of Miss Brown, knowing you will take care of them before anyone else gets them. I am very remorseful. I had been drinking. I met Miss Brown in Buffalo and then again in New York at 4.15 on Monday and reached New York at 7.15 and met Miss Brown. I had two bottles of wine and we both drank some. I drove out to Lover's Lane where there was a large car parked. I drove around until the car had gone and then I pulled up there. I tried to take advantage of her, but she refused. I'd hit her on the head and she fell, thinking I had killed her. I took gasoline from my car and I poured it over, lighting it, and then drove away. I drove through Bernardsville, where I threw the rest of the stuff in the river, as this was all the money she had and I drove around and slept in the car for the rest of the night. I drove to Newark on the next morning where I am in hiding. I have a good car and new tires, and I am signing out. God knows where to hell, I suppose. By the time you get this letter, I shall have got a good start on you. I am going to go until my money gives out, and then when I'm caught, 
I have something with me to end it all before they can do anything. The clerk rushed this letter to the detectives. This might contain a clue that they need to break this case. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I will see you all for part two of The Torch Slayer. I'll see you next time. See ya.